Welcome to Faith Center Foursquare Church's Message of the Week. For more information on the church or ministry, head on over to our website, eurekafaithcenter.org, or find us on Facebook or Instagram. Now, we hope you enjoy this message. So, this morning our title is In the Way for More Than Just a Day. Does anybody recognize that last half of that lyric? Or that last half of that title, it's a lyric? Think on that. You might. It ages me, but this morning I want to focus on, really, we're looking at chapters 5 through 8 as we enter the second part of our series, but I want to focus especially on 5 and 8, but before we go there, and we're going to summarize 6 and 7, but before we go there, I want to give us some, a little bit of history, so... 28 chapters covering about 30 years of the history of the church. So not exactly a chapter per year, and don't read Acts thinking that like a chapter per year, because that's not how it goes, but 28 chapters covering about the first 30 years of the history of the church. And Acts is known as, in my Bible, it's just called Acts. In your Bible, it may be called Acts of the Apostles, or the one that I prefer to think is Acts of the Holy Spirit. That's also a title that many give to this. Acts was written by Luke, and it was the second volume in, to his gospel account to someone called Theophilus. Now, we don't know if Theophilus was actually named Theophilus or if that was a pseudonym. Some believe it was. But regardless, Theophilus means lover of God. And so Luke is the only New Testament writer who is also not a Jew. He was a Gentile, and he was a physician, a very thorough historian, he was a great documentarian, so he wrote a lot of stuff down. But here's a fun fact that I didn't know, I never really thought about. Luke wrote more actual words in the New Testament than any other New Testament writer. What? More than Paul. Yeah. He bookends Acts with his theological theme in Acts 1-3 and 2831, the kingdom of God. So he really was intent on making sure that people understood about the kingdom of God. And Luke referred to his first letter as all that Jesus began to do and teach, not as we, as we learned last week, all that he began to do and teach, not all that he did and not all that he taught, but what he began, the implication, more than the implication, really just said it straight out, that it continues on through the Holy Spirit. So that's what he really wanted his readers to understand. Jesus started it, but it still goes forward. And also, if you read Acts, it doesn't really end. It really does go on. And if you go to the end of Acts and you read it, you'll understand what I'm saying there. Luke was not present within the context of the first 15 chapters, but we see him showing up in chapter, chapters 16 through 28. And, and we know that he was present because he uses the pronoun we. So we call those the we passages. Am I geeking out on anyone here? I, I just, I, the, it's, it's the teacher in me. Later on, maybe the preacher will come out. But, but these things were just so cool to me. So the we passages. And Acts has two main sections. Chapters 1 through 12 deal mainly with the ministry of Peter 
and 13 through 28, mainly the ministry of Paul. And there are also six subsections within, within Acts. You know, Acts didn't originally have chapters and verses, so these were, these were natural transitions that Luke put in so that his readers would, would catch what was happening. And they're, they're basically this, the church in Jerusalem and the preaching of Peter. And here's, and that, that's basically chapter 1 through part of chapter 6. And here's verse 7 of chapter 6. So the word of God spread, the number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. And then the second section picks up right there at verse 8 of chapter 6 and goes on through chapter 9. And this was the message of Jesus spreading through Palestine and the martyrdom of Stephen, sorry, which followed the preaching in Samaria because of the persecution, okay? So verse 31 of chapter 9, then the church throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria enjoyed a time of peace and was strengthened. Living in the fear of the Lord and encouraged by the Holy Spirit, it increased in numbers. Then picking up there, 932 on through chapter 12, this is the conversion of Paul, the church reaching Antioch and the first Gentiles through the family of Cornelius, through Peter. Verse 24 of chapter 12, but the word of the God continued to spread and flourish. You're hearing a, a theme of growth here. The, the message is going out. People are being saved. Lives are being changed. It's just as Jesus said it would be. You will be my witnesses, right? And so they're moving out. Then we go to, in... Uh, Picking up in chapter 12 through chapter 16, the church in Asia Minor, including Galatia, verse 5 of chapter 16, so the churches were strengthened in the faith and grew daily in numbers. Only two more left to go. Chapter 16, picking up at verse 6 through 19, and, it's a, and this is basically the church moves into Europe, including the great cities of the time like Corinth and Ephesus, and verse 20 of chapter 19. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Verse 21 of chapter 19 through the end, it, this is when Paul arrives in Rome. He's imprisoned for his preaching of the gospel. And Acts ends with these verses. He lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. The church is now very established. Because it went to Rome, it was now being established within the known world of that time. Now, we know that there were other parts of the world where things were going on, but from the, from the perspective of the time, that was the known world. And so now the gospel is throughout the known world. But here's the thing, Acts does not help us much with doctrine or theology, as maybe does like a book like Romans. It doesn't give us much for guiding or correcting behavior, like 1 Corinthians or Colossians, two of my favorites, or 1 John or James. It doesn't help us see and understand Jesus better, like the Gospels do, or maybe like the letter to the Hebrews. But Acts is unique among all of the New Testament letters because Acts is the only New Testament letter showing us the working of the early church, but it's not a how-to manual, okay? I like to think of it as more like doing life as the church. It's kind of like this. It's like a GoPro, you know? It's like the GoPro perspective of what's going on in the church. Just presenting the story, not 
having much to say about it, okay? And Luke took all that he learned and edited it, and, and, and a lot that he participated in, and edited it down to just the parts that he felt were important to tell the story of what Jesus continued to do and teach through the key players acting in the power and direction of the Holy Spirit. Whew. That was, the, that was the geek in me, okay? <clears throat> so, as, as we read through... <laughs> hey! <laughs> that's not nice! <laughs> as we read through Acts, um, there are a number of things that become apparent, and three of which I want to highlight as we go through this today. These are like the three points. If you want to put something down, you don't have to, but, but here they are. I'll repeat them a few times. The posture of the church was prayer and worship. Prayer and worship. The message of the church was simple and clear. Three things to think about on that. Jesus was crucified for our sins. He was raised from the dead to bring the hope of resurrection to everyone. And repent, be baptized, and follow Jesus as Lord. And the third was that the power of the church was the Holy Spirit. He healed and delivered. He gifted the church to do what Jesus did. And he developed the church into the character of Jesus. I'm going to say those again. First point, the posture of the church was prayer and worship. The second one, the message of the church was clear and simple. Jesus was crucified for our sins. He was raised from the dead to bring the hope of resurrection to everyone. Therefore, repent, be baptized, and follow Jesus as Lord. And the third one, the power of the church was the Holy Spirit. He healed and delivered. He gifted the church to do what Jesus did. And he developed the church into the character of Jesus. So the product of these three points is that the results were pretty amazing. More than pretty amazing. Now, as I read through the book of Acts, I will admit that I get a little bit frustrated because it's like a an assault on the senses. I mean, you just read like, what? That happened and that happened and that happened. And that, oh my goodness. Have I looked at, have I, Lord, have you done anything in my life? I read this and it looks like nothing's happened in my life. I mean, it's just amazing. It's just, it's, it's just like boom, 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 boom. But remember, 30 years, lots of participants. If you get a little discouraged in your own walk with Jesus, I always recommend Turn around figuratively and look back and see from where he has brought you. See how far you have come as you have surrendered to him, as you have walked with him, as you have listened to, your whole, to the Holy Spirit, as you have followed the teaching in his word. Look where he's brought you. Amen. Somebody did that again. Just kidding. I'm just kidding. So he, it's good if we if we take a moment every now and then and just say, thank you, Jesus, for how far I've come. Whether it's, whether it's in 10 days or 10 years or 30 years. 
Lord, look how far I've come. So, however, as wonderful as that is, you can look back and, and, and reflect, and you can, you can see how amazing God is in the book of Acts. There are some things that we find in Acts that leave us sort of thinking that common interrogative. There's a fancy word. Anybody know what an interrogative means? Question. It means question. So, and it's just, you ask the question, like, wait, what? What? And have you ever said that? Wait, what? What just happened? Lord, if I was writing the book of Acts, I would have left this part out. It's like, oh, no, this is too much. Well, that's what chapter 5 is like. Chapter 5. We could have left part of chapter 5 out, but Luke didn't. He had something to teach in chapter 5. Now, there's disagreement over the centuries about what exactly Luke was trying to say by including that, but he did include it nevertheless. And so we're, that's one of the parts that we're going to zero in on. So, as a preface to that, in Acts chapter 4, as we recall, the believers were selling their property, they were selling their houses, they were selling their belongings to give to anyone who had need. Now, isn't it cool when you read the word that God can show you new things even if you're becoming fossilized, like me, that God can show you new things no matter how old you are, no matter if you've been following him for a long time or a little time. He can show you new things. I have read that so many times at the end of chapter 4. And for some reason, I always contextualize anyone as us. But I'm not sure anyone is limited to the church. It says they gave to anyone who had need. Now, I'm going to do some more research on that, but I like the idea that they were so motivated by the kingdom of God rather than the kingdom of this world. They were so motivated by doing the work that Jesus had called them to do under the power and leading of the Holy Spirit that the Holy Spirit led them to sell what they had as they could and bring it to the apostles' feet so that the apostles could, could wisely distribute that to anyone who had need. That challenges me. Now, I know that some people have used that example through the centuries to believe that in order to properly function as the church, that's what we all must do. That's not a command. It's not, it's not the Holy Spirit saying, this is how you all must do church. But at that time, in that context, that was what the Holy Spirit was speaking to them to do, which raises the question as we read a book like Acts, what is the Holy Spirit speaking to us to do in our time, in our context? And for me, the most important thing is that whatever we do, the message does not get lost in the method. The method is can be anything that's culturally appropriate. And in that culture, at that time, that was fully appropriate for them to do. Everybody understood it. And besides that, if you sold your house, you could always go out and build another one out of sticks and mud. 
<laughs> it was different then. Some of you got it, okay? You didn't take out a 30-year mortgage. It was just like, okay, sold that one. Later on, I can probably build another one. But, so I'm not taken away from what they did, but what they did do was they gave everything because the Holy Spirit was leading them to do that. So that the gospel message could go out so that people could be saved and follow Jesus as Lord. It's the same reason we see the gifts in such strong operation in the early church because there was a lot of new ground needing to be broken and it was a very attractive thing that the Holy Spirit was doing so that people would see that and turn to Jesus. But the power, the miracles, those things were simply the way that the message was promoted so that others could come to know Jesus. So we have to be careful. We learn a lot, but we can't let our methods, whatever our methods are and however wonderful they might be, we can't let our methods ever get in the way of the core message of the church. Jesus died for our sins. He was raised for eternal life. Repent, be baptized, follow Jesus as Lord. The key message of the church. Chapter 5. Now a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself and brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. Then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land? Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You have lied. You have not lied just to human beings, but to God. When Ananias heard this, he fell down and died. And great fear seized all who heard what had happened. Then some young men came forward, wrapped up his body, and carried him out and buried him. About three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Peter asked her, tell me, is this the price you and Ananias got for the land? Yes, she said, that, that is the price. Peter said to her, how could you conspire to test the spirit of the Lord? Listen, the feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out also. At that moment, she fell down and at his feet and died. Then the young men came in and, finding her dead, carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. Wow, contextualize that into 2022. About the only way I can is the idea that God did not tolerate deception in his church. People who comment on these sorts of things disagree about what all that is, and some of them, like I said, kind of wish maybe it wasn't there because it's like, wait, what? I... That's a hard one. But it gets better. The apostles performed many signs and wonders among the people, and all the believers used to meet together in Solomon's colonnade. 
No one else dared join them, even though they were highly regarded by the people. Nevertheless, more and more men and women believed in the Lord and were added to their number. As a result, people brought the sick into the streets and laid them on beds and mats. This is amazing. Listen carefully. So that at least Peter's shadow might fall on some of them as he passed by. Crowds gathered also from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing their sick and those tormented by impure spirits, and all of them were healed. Wow. Wait, what? Right? His shadow? Just, just the mere casting of his shadow? Yep. I don't recommend you go out and have a shadow healing ministry, but... But in that time and in that context with what the Holy Spirit was doing, it was appropriate. Can't build a doctrine around it, but amazing stuff. Why did God do that? He did that because he had in mind that his church should grow, that his message should go out to all the world. Now I want to just kind of summarize because I don't have time to read, but the story of, of Stephen is amazing. Stephen was selected with six others because there was a disagreement within the church. Imagine that. There was a disagreement with, some of you got that. There was a disagreement within the church and they came to the church leaders and said, that's not fair. And so when they did, when they did that, the church leaders, instead of reacting or pointing a finger, they said, there's a problem here. We need to solve it. So they got together. They decided that they would pick seven people that were full of the Holy Spirit. And they chose them to minister to the needs that were being presented, and those needs were met. But those people weren't just table waiters. You'll know what I mean when, I, when you go back and read it. They were also out doing things just like their leaders were doing. They were out speaking the word of God, seeing lives changed, working through the power of the Holy Spirit, people were getting healed. Well, this ticked off the religious leaders regarding Stephen, because Stephen was doing that. So they grabbed him and said, stop, just like they were doing. And he basically said, you know what? Let me tell you about yourselves. And then he went all the way back to Abraham, and he talked about Circumstance after circumstance, Abraham, the exile, Moses, the law, all of it. He went through it and he said, you know what? At every chance along the way, the people that were there that are just like you, the leaders of, them, of that day with them, they also rejected what God was doing. You're rejecting what God was doing. And they said, we can't stand listening to this anymore. So they drug him out and stoned him. Yeah, well, yeah. I don't, rec I don't recommend stoning as a way to end it, but for Stephen, he knew, listen to this, Stephen could have made choices that would have tempered that, but he didn't. He took it straight on. Because what mattered to him most was not this life, but the life eternal with Jesus. He was secure in that. He was secure in that. And so he used this opportunity to confront them with their own issues. And because of it, he gave up his life for Jesus. That challenges me. 
But going way back to the first chapter, when Jesus said, you will be my witnesses, the word witness has the same Greek root as martyr. The word is martus. And so when Jesus said, you'll be my witnesses, they're like, oh, yeah, cool, witness, court of law, I can tell them, you know, what's right, what's wrong. No, Jesus was saying, you will be putting your life on the line every time you share the message that I'm giving you to share because, remember when Jesus said, just like they hated me, they'll hate you? Yeah. The student is not above his master. Yeah. If you don't, go look those up. And now, for, the, for those people that were following Jesus, it's all making sense. When Jesus said, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and in Samaria and to the ends of the earth, they're like, cool, probably, although there were some ethnic and cultural things that they would have stumbled on just a little bit when he said that. But they're probably thinking, cool, witness. But no, they knew exactly what he was saying. They knew that there was a potential for death. But they said, we're with you until the end. Whatever that end looks like. So, let's see if I can find my spot here. We pick up at chapter 8. And the, verse, the first verse of chapter 8 says... Now Saul approved of their, or and Saul approved of their killing. So Saul, who had become Paul, was there at the stoning of Stephen, and he approved of it. So on that day, a great persecution broke out against the church, chapter 8, in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him, but Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. Those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. Philip, who was one of the seven that was chosen when Stephen was chosen, went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed the Messiah there. When the crowds heard Philip and saw the signs he performed, they all paid close attention to what was said. For with shrieks, impure spirits came out of many, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was great joy in that city. And then there was this guy named Simon the Sorcerer. Now, for some time, a man named Simon had practiced sorcery in the city and amazed all the people of Samaria. He boasted that he was someone great, and all the people, both high and low, gave him their attention and exclaimed, This man is rightly called the great power of God. They followed him because he had amazed them for a long time with his sorcery. But when they believed Philip as he proclaimed the good news of the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Simon himself believed and was baptized. And he followed Philip everywhere, astonished by the great signs and miracles he saw. And my title is, In the Way for More Than Just a Day. There is a tendency to probably like Simon did here, have, an, have a response which may have mostly been in emotion, although he may have had a different motivation, which we may find out here in just a moment. But the important thing is we emotions will propel us to make a decision, but emotions won't carry us through. The Holy Spirit was sent to carry us through 
from the time we accept Jesus until the time that we're with Jesus. And he says, well done, good and faithful servant. From the time we accept him until the time we're with him, that part's called sanctification. That's the part where we rely on the Holy Spirit Ephesians says the Holy Spirit is given to us as a deposit until we are with Him. So the church functions, lives, breathes, should exude the power of the Holy Spirit. And I'm so glad that the Holy Spirit is still active in the lives of individual people. Like you and me. I mean, he did stuff that was amazing as we read the book of Acts. But he continued through history to do amazing things with amazing outpourings. The Great Awakening, the Second Great Awakening, the Third Great Awakening, the Fourth Great Awakening, and on and on and waves and after wave in culture after culture of the Holy Spirit doing amazing things. But he doesn't just do amazing things absent of his people. He does amazing things through his people. He carries us from yes to Jesus until Jesus says yes to us. Amen? So, I'm just going to summarize the next part. Simon saw the apostles laying hands, and he went up to them, and he said, This is so cool. Here's some money. Can I do what you're doing? And... Now, if it was the modern church, we would have reacted differently, just like we probably would have reacted differently to Ananias and Sapphira. In the modern church, we probably would have said, oh, Simon, sit down. You've got this a little bit wrong. Let me help you out. And that's all good stuff. That's how we are. We care. We love. We offer grace. All of that. But that's not how this went. Peter answered, may your money perish with you. <laughs> because you th thought you could buy the gift of God with money. You have no part or share in this ministry because your heart is not right before God. Repent of, the wicked, of this wickedness and pray to the Lord in the hope that he may forgive you for having such a thought in your heart, for I see that you are full of bitterness and captive to sin. <sighs> wow, is right. Then Simon answered, and I believe this was really sincere, pray to the Lord for me so that nothing you have said may happen to me. <laughs> Good idea, Simon. <laughs> After that, they had further, uh, after they had further proclaimed the word of the Lord and testified about Jesus, Peter and John returned to Jerusalem preaching the gospel in many Samaritan villages. Okay, personal opinion here. I think Peter and John prayed for Simon. I want to believe that. I believe that Simon got it right. I want to believe that. Because I know how God works with me, and I know how God works with you. That's what I want to believe. And when I see Simon, I'm going to say, Simon, how did that go? <laughs> yeah, he'll say, God forgave. That's right. And he'll say, I'm here with you, brother. <laughs> right? So, 
just by the way, so you know, we're about to close here. Not that, but this. The first mention of the way is found in the next chapter at the beginning, chapter 9. Meanwhile, Saul was breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. Now, I already told you that throughout the 20 centuries or so since the church was founded, there have been many, many amazing moves of the Holy Spirit. One of my favorites is the Welsh revival from 1904-1905, probably because I claim Welshness within my genetic background, so I think it's kind of cool. Um, but in the, in the Welsh revival, within two years, over 100,000 non-believers came to be followers of Jesus. And that re in Wales, that revival was an influence on the Azusa Street revival in 1906 in Los Angeles, and this led to a new wave of Pentecostalism from which the Foursquare Church was founded in 1921 by Amy Sumble McPherson, and we're here today as a result of that move of the Holy Spirit. Amen. <laughs> yes. God connects the dots. Actually, God places the dots. He doesn't just connect them. He makes them, right? So here's a story from the Welsh Revival I am quoting. The story of the Welsh Revival is astounding. Begun with prayer meetings of less than a score of intercessors, less, less than 20. When it burst its bounds, the churches of Wales were crowded for more than two years. 100,000 outsiders were converted and added to the churches, the vast majority remaining true to the end. Drunkenness was immediately cut in half, and many taverns went bankrupt. Crime was so diminished that judges were presented with white gloves, signifying that there were no cases of murder, assault, rape, robbery, or the like to consider. Yes. The police became unemployed, air quotes, in many districts. Stoppages occurred in coal mines. Stoppages occurred in coal mines. Not due to unpleasantness between management and workers, listen carefully to this, but because so many foul-mouthed miners became converted and stopped using foul language that the horses which hauled the coal trucks in the mines could no longer understand what was being said to them. Yeah. And... <laughs> I know, and transportation ground to a halt. That is awesome. So don't underestimate the power of the Holy Spirit to change lives, societies, maybe even the behavior of horses. Oh my goodness. So, finally, I, I want us... I want us to remember just our three main points abbreviated, okay? The posture of the church is prayer and worship. The posture of the church is prayer and worship. In fact, in the Welsh revival, the common phrase that was said was, bend your church, Lord. Bend your church. The message of the church is simple and clear. And the power of the church is the Holy Spirit. Amen. I encourage you as we work through the book of Acts that you don't just rely on us here sharing it with you, but you read it for yourself and let the Holy Spirit speak to you. Let the Holy Spirit speak to you daily in your life. 
It's the Holy Spirit that carries us. We need to rely on Him.